Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, a feminist, client-centered sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we tackle a topic that impacts our sexual and reproductive health by inviting members of our community who work specifically on the subject. Reproductive Left covers a variety of issues, including, but certainly not limited to, reproductive rights, feminism, access to services, sexuality, gender, and relationships. To wrap up our show, we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment. Be sure to stick around for it. good afternoon thank you for listening i think spring is finally here um i can't believe it i'm so happy and we've survived that brutal winter i have a great show for you today here with me is brianna bryant from rape response services i'm first going to just tell you a little bit about rape response services um, it is a nonprofit organization serving Penobscot and Piscataquis counties here in Maine. Their mission is to offer hope, support, and advocacy to victims and people affected by sexual assault and stalking, to provide education about sexual violence, and to promote prevention. They strive to create an atmosphere of nonviolence by pursuing lasting and positive change. They work to support and encourage an end to all forms of oppression. They are a safe space for individuals regardless of gender, race, sexual orientation, age, ability, or religion. They strongly believe in supporting the right of victims or survivors to make self-directed choices, and they are committed to preventing sexual violence and stalking. Support from rape response services and information is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for any person impacted by sexual violence or stalking. To reach them, call 1-800-310-0000. And they also have an online helpline. They have advocates that are available on scheduled evenings from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. to speak with you online in a secure, anonymous forum. And you can find that at rrsonline.org. There's so much that Brianna and I could cover in a conversation about the work she does with Rape Response Services. We could have focused on depressing statistics like one in five women have been the victim of attempted or completed rape in their lifetime. One in five men have experienced a form of sexual violence other than rape. In their lifetime, 1.3 million women have been raped in the last 12 months. But we've decided to keep the conversation positive. We've decided to focus on an extremely important aspect of the prevention work that they do, and that is teaching about consent. So today we're going to talk about what it is how to educate kids, and what it looks like in our lives. Hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Brianna. Thank you for being on Reproductive Left with me today. Thank you for having me. 
So we're going to just start at the beginning. Can you give uh, can you give our listeners a definition on what consent means? Sure. So when we're talking about consent, just in a generalized term, it's really the presence of an enthusiastic yes um, that is active. So it's throughout a sexual encounter. It's not coerced. It's freely given. It's enthusiastic. Teaching consent starts at a very young age. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old nephew. I feel like you even have to start at that point. Absolutely. What tips do you have for new parents? So when we're talking with new parents or we're talking with anybody who works with young children, even just starting at a very young age with, you know, allowing them to have body autonomy. Your body belongs to you. You get to decide if you get hugs and kisses from whoever it may be. While hugs and kisses are wonderful and great and good touches, when it's from somebody that you don't want it from or not comfortable with, that's not okay and really respecting that and and having kids allowing kids to have that boundary and to also expect them to respect that boundary with you where if you don't want something, they should respect that and really using it as a teaching moment. Now, do you have tips for um, parents who are dealing with grandparents who just need to kiss their grandchildren all the time? Really explaining to them that you need to respect our child and we are the parents. Our job is to protect them and to teach them and to be their mama or papa bear. And if you can't respect their body and you can't respect the boundaries that they are putting in place, then we are going to step in and start enforcing those boundaries. That's awesome. Yes. Now, as kids get older, I know you work with kids from a young age all the way through High school, college, adulthood? College, adulthood, we start, I mean, we're doing um, preschool classes as young as two and all the way through college and um, adult groups. Wow. So how does the conversation change as people get older? Um, When we're talking with the really little ones, we're talking about how do we keep our bodies safe and how do we keep others safe around us. So hands are not for hitting. We're talking about our personal body safety rules and touches and um, all of that type of thing, which is starting consent, um, but really putting in place some different types of boundaries and what is okay for me. Once we get going with... um, let's say the tween ages or the um, the young adults, we're talking more about how to be respectful with those around you and how to accept boundaries and how to communicate your thoughts and your needs and what is okay with you and what is not okay with you. But also, if somebody else is expressing that to you, how to respect that and how to be a good listener and how to be in a healthy relationship, whether that's a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship or a friendship. Um, Once we get to high school, we're really kind of laying it out there as far as healthy sexuality and what that looks like in the context of consent. And the schools let you in? They do. We have some very good school partners. Um, Not as many as we would like, but we're getting our foot in the door at some really good high schools and very good middle schools where we have great partners within the schools, really champions for the students that they're working with and bringing in some information and some resources that, you know, a teacher can talk to them about this. But to hear it from an outside resource and to know that there are other caring, supportive adults that are here for you to answer questions and give you good accurate information without freaking out and judging you is a really good place to be. So we have some great schools that we work with, and there are wonderful schools out there that we haven't had the opportunity to work with yet, but we're working on those connections. That's great. Yeah. Uh, girls and boys get very different messages from our culture around sex, consent, relationships. Do you have um, any tips to specifically reach out to talking with boys about consent? 
Um, really making sure that we address that man box that sometimes we even put young boys into that um, a man always has to be in control and always show anger and always be a certain way and tough and strong and um, in that how that carries forward to being hypersexual once they get older but they're seeing examples of this all over the place whether it's our superheroes whether it's the music that we're listening to or the TV shows um, really making sure that they have healthy male role models and and having healthy examples of relationships that are respectful and have good boundaries and are really healthy examples of how we treat our partners, whether they're male or female. I have never heard that term, male man box. Is that what you said? Yes. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really just those gender stereotypes that really kind of box um, men and women in of you're born with this anatomy, so you're supposed to work work or be or act or behave a certain way um, and really kind of boxes them in. And so if you look at the man box, it's really a guy supposed to be tough and in control and earn the money and bring home the bacon or wear the pants or whatever, all those types of male stereotypes that we have about what it takes to be a real man. Um, and what about for girls? Um, I think we're, we're making some strides with this whole girl power um, initiative, which is wonderful and really kind of making feminism not a dirty word anymore. And I know we've gotten some flashback about that in the last year or so, but really um, allowing girls to express themselves in, in ways that are healthy, in ways that are not um, put upon them. So when we're talking about the girl boxes that um, stereotypically what it means to act like a lady is be submissive and be pretty and not cause a scene or cause a ruckus or that sort of thing. You don't want to make people mad at you, but allowing um, young girls um, to really own their bodies and to be able to respect and know or if they want something or don't want something or express themselves in ways that aren't always what we deem stereotypically ladylike. Um, but also making sure we're not um, kind of over-sexualizing our young kids. I've noticed okay. that a lot as having a little ones, um, both male and female, is that sexualizing from a very young age is happening more and more often in a very, um, not overt ways, but it's kind of sneaky. Um, it's just a really interesting dynamic of what's going on yeah. and how we see... Um, I mean, we're all sexual beings from birth to death, but how we are sexualized and made and objectified, essentially, from a very young age, even. Yeah, and we've I've read some articles that even about girls not being able to wear certain clothes to school at starting at a really young age, yes. which, in my opinion, teaches them to feel shameful. Um, yeah, and it's really kind of bringing forward that concept of you are supposed to act a certain way and look a certain way as a girl and as a young woman. But it also takes, um, it, it's kind of putting some pressure on guys about that, you know, you are not in control of your sexual urges. So just because a young woman is wearing something that's deemed sexual, um, that automatically puts them at risk. And it puts you at risk at being a perpetrator. So it's not giving guys enough credit. I think that's a really good point that we don't actually talk about enough that it's basically saying it dehumanizes men as much as it dehumanizes women. Absolutely. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Reproductive Left. Produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. I'm the host, Abby Strout. On the show with me today is Brianna Bryant from Reap Response Services. You can find their online helpline at 
rrsonline.org and their hotline number is 1-800-310-0000. Today, Brianna and I are talking about consent. So I love that a big part of consent is talking about gender roles and breaking down those those boxes. Um, Now, what does consent look like in a sexual relationship? Consent looks like being able to freely express yourself. What are your wants? What are your needs? What do you like? What don't you like? And having your partner respect that. It's really about healthy sexuality and how that works and how we communicate it and how our partner is receptive to that. Um, It's really, we had a campaign at one point that consent is really sexy, which is absolutely true because what could be sexier than your partner um, wanting to do things to you that you like and you feel good about? Um. In our culture now, we, we hear this term hookup culture a lot and yes. um, a lot on college campuses. And oftentimes in this culture, um, alcohol, even sometimes drug use is involved. How does consent fit into that scene? What does it look like there? It's it's really, really muddy. So when we're talking about consent, this is something that is freely given, that you're not coerced um, and you're not you're able to freely give it so your mind is working in a way that you can understand consequences, know where you are, are you safe, and all that sort of thing. When you add alcohol or any mind-altering substance, um, some of that is taken away, and I'm not saying that alcohol is the cause of sexual assaults, but we need to recognize that people are put in positions when they are drinking that is not the safest for them, and how we act upon that and how we treat others around us that are maybe intoxicated and maybe they're not safe and how do we keep them safe um it's it's a hard dynamic to play into because i mean you can be sexual there's nothing wrong with having sex there's nothing wrong with drinking there's nothing necessarily wrong with putting the two together um but when it's used to be hurtful to be harmful or to incapacitate you to a uh, point where on a normal sober day you would say no to that person but now that you're drunk they're going to take that as a yes that comes in a really really muddy place one of the things i've heard um the term lately is the bystander intervention is that something um that you work on yes. at a college campus Yes, we try to do a lot with bystander intervention and what that looks like and how they can do it safely, not only for themselves, but for those around them, but really taking steps. If you recognize a situation going down and you're like, that just, that looks a little awkward. How can I intervene in an appropriate way? Do I feel safe or comfortable making a direct approach and saying, hey, what's going on here? Are you guys okay? Do I want to kind of delegate and bring in some of my friends and like, I don't know what's going on. This looks really weird or I am not very comfortable with that or um, even a distraction approach where you just holler, um, the cops are here or whatever it may be or all oh, parties closed and everybody out, that type of thing. Um, but the approach that you take, um, we're kind of giving them the tools in order so that if they're not feeling okay about something, it's okay to say something. Another thing I hear a lot is that asking for consent can be awkward. Um, do you have any advice for that? You, you know, it can be really awkward. You're thinking, I'm going to do A to your B and we're going to do C. <laughs> I, that can be really awkward, but really coming back to healthy sexuality. And if you don't feel comfortable being able to freely express what you want, what you don't want, or being able to accept that from your partner, are you ready to be sexually active with them? Um, It doesn't mean that you never will be, but also just can you do it 
Um, it can be really funny. Um, it doesn't have to be serious. It doesn't have to be robotic, but however you make it sexy and however you keep it um, in the mood. So um, asking a partner, do you like this? Does this feel good? Can you show me? Um, just trying to think of those terms, but it definitely can feel really awkward. Um, but you really want to do things with your partner that you both feel good about, you both like, are both safe. Yeah, so it's not like a contract. I saw a commercial no. once for consent that it was like two kids signing a con contract before yes. engaging in sexual I, I really <laughs> like that video because it's so satirical and it's so much sarcasm and it is funny and um, how we treat it. And it doesn't have to be that awkward, but it's really do you um, feel comfortable enough to talk to your partner? Um, and to be able to express your ideas because that's really, when you want healthy sexuality, it's about um, being able to be comfortable within your own skin and how you express and communicate that with someone. I also read somewhere that one of the reasons why people don't ask things like, can I kiss you even, is because they're afraid the other person's going to say no. And yeah. I feel like that's a reason to definitely ask. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> There's always that, you know, that flow chart. If I ask this, what, do, what is my answer going to be? And if you're afraid the answer is going to be no, that probably the answer is no and you need to stop what you're doing. Doesn't mean you're a bad person or it's never going to happen. Just at that moment, maybe your breath really stinks. <laughs> so just brush your teeth and then we can kiss. It's okay. Um, another thing is that, especially in pop culture, especially in a lot of music, um, there's a lot of messaging that no doesn't necessarily mean no. So no, so um, like the song Blurred Lines by Robin Thicke, I know yes. that's outdated now, but even also that like Christmas song that's um, like about someone maybe it's cold yes. outside. Yes. Um so it's a woman saying no or that's not what she's interested in and men continuing to kind of talk her into it. And yep. there's this idea there's kind of this idea in our culture that women are supposed to say no first. Where do you have some advice on where that line where that is it blurred? Is it what is that? It, this is really, really hard because, I mean, it's hard to sometimes go up against big pop culture because it is such a big part of our our communities and our culture and where we learn things. But thinking and having the conversations with young people or adults about um, how does that song play into your life and are you emulating that or is that what you esteem to be? And like going back again to those stereotypes even about men being hypersexual and that's what's playing out in the music. Um, but really, it's a stepping point for a conversation about what does that song mean to you is do you like it because it's a poppy um, tune and you can kind of bebop and sing along with it or are you really listening to the lyrics and I think putting in context too I mean when you have a seven-year-old singing some of those lines it kind of you kind of perk up a little bit and um, really teaching respect and um, accepting an answer as it's given and not trying to coerce or make somebody feel bad even for what they're doing. Um, it's, it's a hard line to take and there isn't, I mean, it is kind of blurry. Um, there isn't a very good answer for that one. Um, do you see the conversation moving forward? Have we been speaking this openly in our past about consent and healthy relationships? Are we uh, no, yes and no. I don't think as much. I, I, I mean, we live in a, in a culture that is very sexualized. We see sex everywhere. Sex is used to sell things, to advertise things, um, how we express ourselves or how we are shamed because we are sexual. Um, so it's everywhere, but we don't always talk about what it means for us. 
um, I think having this conversation more and making it more open, um, young people are actually really open to receiving this information and having the conversation. And sometimes they're really relieved that somebody is talking to them about this. Um, and it, as a parent, I know I kind of, I don't know if I dread or look forward to the day where I can talk to my kids about this as openly as I do in <laughs> high school classes, but you know, it's, and it's starting young even and it's not just a one-time conversation. It's something that we need to not only continue to have on multiple occasions, but to live and to kind of relate in our own lives and to mirror that. Your kids are really lucky to have a mom that's so willing to have these conversations, though. You say that. They might say something very different when they start to get older. I bet you'll end up having these conversations with all their yes. friends, too. You're going to be the go-to. Yes, I have friends that have kids, and we have, like, oh, if your kid has... It'd be easy to talk to your kids. Just send them over to me. And they kind of... They, they think about it. I'm not sure what they think yet. But. I bet they will. <laughs> Well, we do need to move into our Ask Mabel segment. I just wanted to thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. Answering my questions. The work you do is so important, and I think that, um, you know, healthy sexuality is such an important part of our well-being. Absolutely. So thank you. Thanks. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Reproductive Left, produced by... WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. The interview today was with Brianna Bryant from Rape Response Services. You can find their information online. They have an online helpline at rrsonline.org and their hotline number is 1-800-310-0000. I want to thank Brianna Bryant one more time for being on the show with me today. And listeners, please don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with the Ask Mabel segment. Hello and welcome to Ask Mabel. Here with me is one of our fabulous nurse practitioners, Terry Marley Drozier. She is here to answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. If you have a question, please email educate at mabelwadsworth.org, and we will always keep your questions confidential. All right. Hi, Terry. I have only one question for you today. This question comes from a woman who is in a new relationship. The relationship is on its way to becoming sexual, and she needs to tell him that she has herpes. She really likes this guy and is scared he will end things. Do you have any advice for her? Hi, Abby. Good afternoon. Um, Yeah, we have some great advice that we'd like to share. Um, I think, you know, to start with, I would just like to say that getting the facts really helps in your discussion with a partner about uh, genital herpes. You know, up to one in four sexually active adults have genital herpes, and about 80% of them um, aren't even aware that they are infected. Uh, cold sores on the mouth and genital herpes are medically the same condition. The significant difference here arises from the stigma that accompanies genital herpes because of the fact that it's sexually transmitted. And how do how does one talk about this? You know, most people find that their partners are both supportive and understanding. It's a common assumption to initially think that a person may base their judgment of you on the fact that you have genital herpes. 
However, for most people, this is a minor skin infection. People fear the possibility of rejection, but the reality of this is that it, it really rarely happens. Because fear of rejection is a concern, it leads some people to question why they would want to take the risk to even talk to a new partner about genital herpes. And so therefore, you know, they don't tell and they choose to abstain when they have an outbreak and practice safe sex at other times and just hope for the best. And this strategy, though, may have more disadvantages than advantages. You know, first of all, you may spend a lot of time and energy worrying that your partner is going to get herpes. Uh, it's much harder to tell someone if they've just found out that they've been infected with herpes. For most people, the anxiety over not telling the partner um, is is worse than telling them. Um, by telling your partner that you have her herpes, it allows them to enter into the relationship uh, with full knowledge of the infection, and the, you therefore you reduce the likelihood of becoming infecting. Uh, you reduce the likelihood of infecting that partner. Um, this is because when you have an outbreak, you can discuss it with your partner instead of making excuses uh, for why you can't have sex. Excuses create a lot of distance between partners and often can lead to misunderstanding and guesswork. Your partner could interpret those excuses uh, as being detrimental to the relationship when a more honest discussion uh, would alleviate that concern. Now, do you have any good opening lines to get this conversation started? Well, as a matter of fact, I do. Um, I think that, you know, having this straightforward and positive conversation about herpes is the best approach um, in the long run. And, you know, clients have said to me, you know, how long should you know someone before you tell them? You know, and if it appears that you're going to be um, ending up sexually active, you know, at the time of a first date, then that's probably a good time to have the conversation. You know, ideally, I would suggest that people give themselves a little time to know each other, to develop a relationship, you know, based on trust and communication. It's much easier to talk about um, this issue when you do um, have a foundation. Um, of trust there. Um, there are good and bad times to bring up the topic of herpes. Um, now, I wouldn't suggest that you bring this up in a crowded bar or at a party or, you know, if you're, you know, heading out to a romantic date um, or if you've just uh, finished having intercourse um, or just prior to having intercourse. I wouldn't suggest that we talk about it in that setting. Um, but to look for a time when it feels safe for you and comfortable um, to talk about it. You know, some people feel like if they're, you know, home and they shut off the TV and they put the phone on mute, um, it gives them an opportunity to have a discussion in a quiet, uh, uninterrupted way. Some people feel more comfortable talking about this like walking in the park so that, you know, there's space around them and they feel like um, they can maybe work off a little nervous energy being outside. And it really doesn't matter where you choose to have the discussion um, as long as you do have this discussion. It's important to realize that both of you may become um, emotional as part of this discussion. But some following opening statements may help you um, to bring up the topic in a non-threatening way. For example, you might say, I have something I'd like to discuss with you. Have you ever had a cold sore? The reason I ask is that cold sores are caused by a type of virus, the herpes simplex virus. 
I have that virus. Only instead of getting it on my mouth, I get one in my genital area. Or another option might be, when two people get along as well as we do, I think we owe it to each other to be totally honest. I'd like to talk about our sexual histories. A third option might be, I really enjoy being with you and I'm glad that we're becoming more intimate. I think it's important that we talk about sex. Can we talk about that now? Fourthly, we're both responsible adults who want to do what's best for each other and ourselves. Let's talk about safe sex. And finally, a suggestion might be, I feel that I can trust you and I'd like to tell you something personal. Last year I found out that I had contracted genital herpes. I think it's important, Abby, that we have this conversation and try not to be melodramatic about it. This isn't a confession or a lecture. It's simply the sharing of information between two people. You know, if we can avoid negative words and keep the dialogue simple and factual, um, it makes it a lot easier to have this discussion. Um, some logical opportunities of when this might um, be talked about, you can just kind of feel that out for yourself so that it's more natural for you. And people do talk about, in new relationships, you know, talk about safe sex and HIV and AIDS, and this may be um, the appropriate time to, you know, to bring this up. You might even be surprised in telling your partner um, because they may have equal concern because they themselves may be dealing with herpes or another type of sexually transmitted infection. Whatever the reaction, try to, re to be flexible though, because you know, remember it took you a while uh, to adjust to the diagnosis yourself. Great, thank you so much, Terry. For more information about Mabel Wadsworth Center, visit www.mabelwadsworth.org or Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center on Facebook. Thanks for listening to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. I'm Abby Strout. Tune in next time, the first Tuesday of the month at 4 p.m. right here at WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming everywhere at www.weru.org.